Good morning. Romans chapter 3, looking at verse, verses 9 through 18 this morning. So I invite you to turn your, your copy of God's Word, turn to that particular section. If you don't have a Bible, we would encourage you to grab one of the blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you. If you flip that open to page 940, that will bring you to this section of text this morning. So I titled this message, Human Depravity. Human Depravity. Inside of your bulletin, on the left-hand side, there's an outline. So I would encourage you to maybe use that to follow along. There is a teaching or doctrine. And that's all that doctrine really means. It's a teaching of the Bible. But there's a teaching or a doctrine of the Bible that is referred to as total depravity. Total depravity. How many of you are are familiar with that particular phrase concerning Christianity? Okay. Not everyone. Well, for those of you who are not, or for those of you who might have a misunderstanding about exactly what that phrase means, I want to take just a few seconds on the front here to explain it. Okay? Kind of help you through that. You could simply define the word depravity, depravity as a state of moral corruption as a state of moral corruption. So when we talk about a person being depraved in this Christian context, we mean that they are morally corrupt or corrupted morally. And the word total, in the phrase total depravity, uh, should be understood as meaning that every part of a person is depraved. Every part of a person. So that would be their mind, their thinking apparatus, okay, their brain, their will, their emotions, their heart, the entire man or woman. That's what is meant by total depravity. All of it, all every part of that person is stained or corrupted or has been tainted by sin. Okay? Total depravity. Now there's a website, I've recommended it before, I'd... I obviously haven't looked at everything they have on this website, but it's, it's very helpful. It's called Got Questions, gotquestions.org. I encourage you to check it out. You simply can go to the website. It's a Christian website, and you can ask any question related to Christianity, to the Bible, and it will give you responses. Typically, it does a pretty good job. And, and, and most of the responses I have seen, I felt like were very biblical responses. So again, this is not an endorsement for the whole website, but... I mention that because I just thought, what do they say about total depravity? How would they define it? And they've given some helpful things here, so I thought I would share that with you. Concerning total depravity, they say this on gotquestions.org. Sin affects all areas of our being. This is, again, concerning total depravity. Sin affects all areas of our being, including who we are and what we do. It penetrates the very core of our being so that everything... Everything about us is tainted by sin. Now, it is important to note that the the doctrine of total depravity, the doctrine of total depravity does not teach that people are as bad or as sinful as they can be. That's not what it means, total depravity. They're not as bad or as sinful as they can be. Rather, 
It means that humanity comes into this world being as bad off as they can be because sin has contaminated every person entirely. Their mind, their will, their emotion. And this depravity, beloved, has dire or terrible consequences concerning how we relate to God and how we relate to one another. Are you with me so far? And we're going to see that in our text this morning. That's why I'm talking about all of this. Now, I want to take another quote from gotquestions.org, again, concerning this idea of total depravity, this teaching, this doctrine that we find in the Scriptures. Beginning here, Even when the doctrine of total depravity is properly understood, many people will reject the doctrine. They will reject this teaching. But that fact should not surprise us since the world generally thinks of man as being basically good. Therefore, the idea that man by nature is a depraved sinner runs contrary to most modern religious, psychological, and philosophical views of the basic nature of man. We'll just pause there for a second. So if you go to a college campus, a secular college campus, and you take a philosophy class or a religious class or psychological class, uh, they're not, they're not going to agree with this understanding of God's Word that man is totally depraved, not, not all men. They might say some men, but they would certainly not say all men. And they would have a different understanding of that, certainly. But the fact is that the Bible does teach the depravity of the human heart. And listen, and the root cause of man's problem, this is huge, the root cause, the main cause, if you dig, go dig all the way down, you go, what is causing our problems? It is not the environment. It is not our environment. It is not our circumstances. But it is His wicked and selfish heart. It is His wicked and selfish heart. So in other words, we tend to blame all of our problems on the world that we live in. But the reality is the problem is with us. So that's why when people run away and they think that they'll get away from their problems... That doesn't happen because they are the problem. Wherever they go, the problem is. It's sin. Properly understood, the doctrine of total depravity will destroy the hopes of those who place their faith in any type of works-based system of salvation. It destroys that idea. If people really understood what, God, what the Word of God said about humanity, they would give up on the ridiculous idea that they could somehow merit good standing with God on their own. That they could f- gain God's favor. It's impossible. It's impossible. And beyond that, they would recognize that God's sovereign grace is man's only hope. It is man's only hope. By the way, instead of the phrase total depravity, some choose to call it righteous incapability. I like that phrase. Righteous incapability. Or radical corruption. Radical corruption. Again, morally speaking. With me so far? Okay. Now I bring all this up because the text we are looking at today summarizes well the total depravity of man and is regularly used by Bible teachers along with other texts in the God's Word to support or establish that very doctrine. Okay? So that's why I'm bringing this all up. And that's why I've titled this sermon Human Depravity. 
Additionally, concerning this section of text in Romans 3, one of the great preachers of the 20th century, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and if you don't know him, it doesn't matter. He's just a a well-known preacher of the 20th century. He said this concerning this text. Here, we see a picture of what man is really like in and of himself by his natural birth, apart from the grace of God in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is a terrible picture. But it is a true picture. There are not many passages of Scripture in which the terrible nature and character of sin are brought out more strongly than they are in this particular section. We should take time, and that's what I plan on doing, with these descriptions, terrible and awful though they are, they are true and true of every one of us by nature. Okay? Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? And you're going to get more of it if you come back next week. But I think you'll, I think I want to make, I'll make a few comments hopefully if I have time at the end and, and explain why this is really so important. So important for us to meditate on, to think about, to know, to understand, and to not breeze over. To not breeze over. Another writer simply says concerning this section, it is the grim declaration of man's moral bankruptcy and guilt before God. Good news, huh? So let's read it. Let's look at this section. Let's read it now. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. I'm going to read to the end of verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes this inspired words, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We're going to begin to examine, and this is in your, in your bulletin, we're going to begin to examine basically 14 staggering descriptions of fallen humanity. Of fallen humanity. Humanity in their sin. So that we might clearly see how messed up we all naturally are. All right? That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to begin this morning. Concerning fallen humanity, we'll look at first, none is righteous, no, not one. Again, I'm, I'm simply drawing these points just right out of the, the text. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. And third, we might possibly get there today, no one seeks for God. But we're going to stop there. There's 14 in all. We're just going to do the first three. Okay? So, before we look at the first one, there are no, none righteous, no, not one. We need to, to cover verse 9. We need to look at verse 9. So look back at the text with me. Paul writes, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 3, 
This is verse 9. In verse 1 of chapter 3, we looked at this last week. So if you weren't here, that's okay, but just trying to remind you. Paul is anticipating that his words in chapter 2 could have been misunderstood. So he said that the Jews, in other words, they may have thought that Paul was saying there was no benefit at all to being a Jew. Absolutely none. And that's not what Paul was saying. So in chapter one, or verse 1 of chapter 3 and going past that, he says that the Jews did have some advantages over everyone else. They actually did. And, and he starts by pointing out that they were the ones that were entrusted with the oracles of God or the word of God or the sayings of God. We talked about all this last week. And beloved, while that clearly was an advantage, it did not mean, however, that they were any better off with God when it comes to God's impartial judgment of every single human being, as they mistakenly thought. See, they thought they actually were better off in that area, that they had an advantage concerning God's judgment. Paul has made it clear, as we've been seeing in the first part of Romans, that Jews and Gentiles, and he uses the word Greeks here, Jews and Greeks are all under sin, and we've talked about that. Greeks is just another way of referring to the Gentiles. Gentiles are non-Jewish people. So we've said that many times, but the world is divided up into two categories in Scripture, the Jews and the Gentiles, Greeks in this case, at this time. Anyway, he makes an effort on the first part of Romans that the Jews and the Gentiles are all on equal terms when it comes to the judgment of God. That's what he's been telling us in many different ways. So after pointing out that this one advantage that the Jews did have here in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul wants to make it clear again that the the advantage did not make them any better off concerning God's judgment. Don't get me wrong, okay? I, I just pointed out you have an advantage, but what then? Am I now saying we're better off? Am I is that what I'm saying concerning God's judgment because that's been the context? No, not at all. Absolutely not. And then he says because it it has already been charged that Jews and Greeks or Gentiles are all under sin. Okay? That's verse 9. Now, I want to focus in for a moment on that phrase, under sin. Under sin. Notice that Paul doesn't say at the end of verse 9 that it has already been charged that all are sinners. Does it say that? It does not say that. Now, he could have said that. He could have said that. That would have been fine, but he didn't say that. He also didn't say, it has already been charged that all have sinned. He does say that in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. But he doesn't say that here. Rather, he uses this phrase, under, under sin, which implies something more than just being a sinner. To be under sin in the context of Scripture is to be under sin's enslaving power and under the condemnation that results from it, from being under sin and its power. Okay, did you hear that? I'm going to say it a couple times more. One writer adds this thought concerning this section of text. I think this is important. The problem with people is not, and when I say people, I mean everyone, us, you, not don't think people out there, okay? People. The problem with people is not just that they commit sins. 
The problem is that they are enslaved to sin. That's the problem. What is needed, therefore, is a new power to break in and set people free from sin. A power found in and only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Keep that thought in the back of your mind, okay, as we move through this text. Paul speaks exactly this way about sin, and we'll see it when we get to Romans chapter 6. He tells the Christian there, who has been set free, he says, from sin's enslavement. The Christian, through Christ, has been set free from being under the power, the tyrannical power of sin, sin's cruel power over them. Paul tells that Christian to no longer then let sin rule or reign over their lives. Why? Because they, unlike the rest of the world, have been set free from the power of sin. Now, the fact that mankind is naturally under sin, naturally under sin, they're born under sin, enslaved to sin, making them guilty and worthy of God's wrath, leaving them depraved, placing them in a state of moral corruption, that fact has already been established, proven in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. Let me remind you of how, in case you haven't been here, And if you have been here, this should spark your memory. In Romans 1, we saw the consequences of what happened. Do you remember this? In Romans chapter 1, we saw the consequences of what happened when God gave the Gentiles over to themselves. And we talked about what that meant. He gave them over to themselves, up to themselves. That meant He removed His restraining power and He let them do what their hearts desired to do. And what was the outcome of that, beloved? Peace and tranquility and goodness abound. Was that the, was that the outcome of, of such things, of God giving people over to themselves, letting them do whatever their hearts want to do? No, we saw it. Moral chaos, wickedness and perversion of every kind. Romans chapter 1. When God gave man over to himself. And in Romans 2 we saw that even though the Jews had been entrusted with the oracles of God, had God's law, a good law, boasted in the possession of that law, were even teachers of that very law, even so, they couldn't help but break it. They couldn't help but break it. They could not live in total obedience to it. Why? Why is that true? Because all, beloved, all are born under the power of sin. And therefore, all are condemnable, worthy of God's wrath. That is, all who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Just keep that in mind. Continue to remember that. Another man I respect, name is John Piper. He's a modern-day preacher of God's Word. Commenting on verse 9, he says this, verse 9 of chapter 3. Listen. One of the most important truths to hold up in the world. Boy, that's big. One of the most important truths. You ready? Here it is. This is, this is what he says. Highly respect this man. Faithful teacher of God's Word. Is that all human beings, even though created in God's image, Genesis 1, 27, are corrupted by the power of sin. 
We are not morally good by nature. We are morally bad by nature. In Ephesians 2, 3, Paul says we are all by nature children of wrath. People talk about being born children of God. You're not born a child of God. You're born a child of wrath according to the Word of God. You become a child of God by placing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not born a child of God. Not according to the Scriptures. I know people talk like that. It's not biblical. It's not right. It's not accurate. You're actually born a child of wrath. The attitudes and thoughts, listen, and actions that deserve the wrath of God, they come from us by nature. We do it naturally. We, we don't just do sins. We are sinful. We are under sin, as verse 9 says. Sin is like a master or a king and it reigns over us and in us. I would agree with all of that. And then he goes on to say, listen, I like this too, so I wanted to bring it before your attention. This is not a popular message. (laughs) You know, you'll never hear this in Joel Osteen's church, I promise you. Because he wants to be positive. (laughs) But the Scriptures are the Scriptures. This is what the Word of God says. Now, there is a positive message hidden in here. Listen, this is not a popular message, understandably. It is no more popular than the doctor's words, your tumor is malignant. But it is vastly more hopeful. The tumor is malignant may or may not be hopeful news because the doctor may or may not have a cure for your cancer. But, quote, you are under the power of sin and a child of wrath always has a cure. This is what the book of Romans and what Christianity and the Bible are all about. How depressing, how discouraging it would be if all I got up here to do and say was, you guys are all doomed. We're all doomed. You're all a bunch of rotten, pathetic, wretched, depraved people. Naturally, there's no hope for you. You deserve to be condemned by God. You deserve every bit of wrath that you get and so do I. Wow, aren't you great? Now let's pass the offering plates again and... Try it one more. I mean, you know, there's nothing good about that. But in telling you this, giving you this diagnosis, there's hope because that's not the end of the story. There's a cure. Paul's getting to that. But first, he has to diagnose properly. He has to tell it as it is. He's not pulling any punches. He's not winking his eyes and giving you a positive, feel-good message so you can walk out of here and go, I just feel so spiritual today, so wonderful. He's given... The truth. Because that's what we need, beloved. Now, to support the fact of the universal bondage of sin, that all people, both Jew and Gentile, are plagued by this nasty disease, guilty before God, and by nature children of wrath, to do that, to support that, now Paul draws several quotes from the Old Testament, specifically from Psalms, several places in Psalms, and also from the book of Isaiah. That's why he says, as it is written. So remember, that's him referring back to the Word of God, the Scriptures at the time, the Old Testament. One writer just says, Paul used the Old Testament Scripture to prove, he's going to use the Scriptures now to prove the lamentable state of those outside of Christ. Lamentable, sad, mournful state, terrible, discouraging state of all of those who are outside of Christ. 
Look back at the text now. Paul says this in verse 10, Romans chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. That's the first point. None is righteous, no, not one. Simple. Now, I don't know how much clearer Paul could make it. I don't. But people still remain confused. Paul's making no exceptions here. None. There, are, there is no one righteous, not even one. You know what that means? There is no one, or all people are, let me say it this way, all people are unrighteous. All people. Concerning humanity, the problem of sin is universal, and it has ruined everyone to the degree that no one in and of themselves could accurately be labeled as righteous according to God's standards. You could understand righteous here, beloved, to mean being blameless with regard to God in regard to our fellow man, or as living in perfect harmony to God's law, perfect conformity to God's law, or, you could understand it this way, living exactly as God desires us to live. Jesus summarized what it meant to be righteous by summarizing the entire law of God into two great commands. Maybe you remember this in Matthew 22:37 through 40. It would be this. First, it is love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That would be the first thing you must do perfectly. And second, it is to love your neighbor as yourself. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever known any human being to be blameless with regard to God and their fellow man in this way, loving both without fail? Have you ever? Neither have I. Now, I've known plenty of people who, generally speaking, behave themselves. Right? Moral people. And I know many people who would even consider themselves to be good people. That's how they would identify themselves. But the problem is, they still do not measure up to being righteous. Because there are none who are blameless or truly innocent because everyone fails to one degree or another to love God and to love people. See, I have found that people usually have no problem at all saying, yeah, I'm not perfect. I mean, no one's perfect, right? You've probably said that. People say that. But sometimes people, they don't mean what we mean necessarily when we might say that. We'll say we're not perfect. We recognize we are ruined sinners. Without the grace of God, we're nothing. But typically when the world says, I'm not perfect, hey, I'll admit that right away, but I'm not that bad. That's usually what follows. It's either it's spoken or it's implied in their attitude, even in the phrase, I'm not perfect. And that basically means that they're not as bad as other people who are more unrighteous than they are. Did you hear what I just said? I'm not that bad means I'm not as bad as the other person who is more unrighteous than I am. Compared to them, I don't look too unrighteous. They wouldn't say that, but that's really what's going on. And beloved, most people would tend to resist categorizing themselves as being unrighteous. Are you unrighteous? I wouldn't say that. What would you say? I'm not perfect. Here's the problem. From God's perspective, there is 
No, not that bad category. There is no category like that in the scriptures. Not that bad. Not, not perfectly righteous, if that's what you want to put on me. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not perfect, but I'm, that's not the option. There is righteous and there is unrighteous. And no one in and of themselves, according to God's word, is righteous. And that, beloved, is a big problem for humanity. Because being unrighteous on any level subjects a person to God's wrath and his condemnation. You understand the problem? When people are walking around saying, I'm not that bad, you are bad. Stop comparing yourself to the drug druggie or the guy in prison. Stop comparing yourself to that. Do you love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? And do you love your neighbor as yourself? There's the standard. Well. Well. Do you see? You're under God's condemnation. You're under His wrath. You're unrighteous. Now let's move on to the second point. No one understands. No one understands. It's right there in the text. Romans 3, 11. As is written, none is righteous, no, not one. First part of verse 11, no one understands. Humanity, listen, in their fallen state, in their natural condition, being under the power and domain of sin, all of that is true. Consequently, then, they lack understanding. What does that mean? Well, in the context of God's Word, it means that humanity lacks the ability to really understand spiritual truth. To really understand spiritual truth on their own in and of themselves. Again, referring back to that preacher, great preacher, Dr. Lloyd Martin-Jones, he says these words. I found them to be helpful. They are lacking in an understanding of divine things. They have perhaps a kind of secular, earthly, carnal understanding. Some of them may be very proficient in art. Just listen. This is not what Paul is saying. He's not saying people are dumb. They lack intelligence. He's saying they lack understanding. Some of them may be very proficient in art or in science or in various other branches of knowledge and of culture. They may have a lot of degrees. They may be respected in the world. They have got an understanding there, expert in politics, expert in business, full of understanding and insight in those areas. But, says the Apostle, as the result of sin, every single person who has ever been born into the world since the fall, and when he says fall, he's talking about what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. Since then, they do not have spiritual understanding. So not only is humanity lacking essential righteousness to make them acceptable to God, but Scripture says they are also spiritually ignorant. Paul refers to the spiritual ignorance in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. There, the Apostle Paul writes, The natural person, naturally born, no influence of the Spirit in their life. They don't have the Spirit of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, foolishness, moronic. And he is not able even to understand them. He can't even understand them. Because they are spiritually discerned. One writer says this concerning fallen humanity, and specifically Romans 3.11. 
Not only is he bad, but he is hopelessly stupid when it comes to divine truth. Wow, those are harsh words, but not any harsher than what Paul has just written. He goes on to say men, I like this, have a natural, innate, they're born with it, inability. Inability, not ability. Inability to understand the things of God. That's man. Under sin. Enslaved to the power of sin. Beloved, think with me for a second. If you are a Christian, then you no doubt see and understand the world and humanity very, very different than your non-Christian friends. Is that true? You've experienced that as a Christian. You see things quite differently. In fact, I would say you see them more right or correct because your understanding is correct of the world and humanity. Why? Because you, beloved, are able to understand spiritual truth or the things of God. But you need to remember that it is only because you have been enabled by the grace of God to comprehend spiritual truth that you can understand divine things. Otherwise, you too, and so would I, would be hopelessly stupid when it comes to this matter. You understand? Without the grace of God and the Spirit of God at work in our lives and in our hearts, we too would not understand divine things. Let's move to the third point. And this one is significant. No one seeks for God. Look back at the text. Romans chapter 3. Verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, no one understands. And the last part of verse 11, no one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. Romans 3.11. Again, Paul says, no one, no exceptions to this. This is universally true. Now, beloved, that contradicts what many people might think or say. It does. That no one seeks for God. But you know what? God's Word often does that, doesn't it? Contradict what we think or what we say. You ever had that happen to you? That you think one way and God's Word says something else? So what are you going to do? Well, God's Word must be wrong. Huh? I mean, ultimately, that's where people go many times. They wouldn't say that, but maybe they don't like something in the Word of God, so they resist it. They ignore it. They try to get around it or they mutilate it and make it say something it couldn't possibly say so that it will agree with them. But beloved, as Christians, we are to subject ourselves to the Word of God. It is the absolute authority in our lives. And so when it says something I don't understand maybe or I disagree with, the right response is not to get upset about it but to bow my heart and my mind before it. Because then and only then can you be changed by it. You got me? I mean, I would say that for so many things, but this is one of those things. So, let me hear one writer comments regarding no one seeks for God and the fact that people, many people would disagree with that, that statement. He says this, People throughout the world are often pictured as seeking God through various paths offered by different religions. Okay, listen, you can turn on the talk shows and you'll hear this kind of nonsense 
This is people are, are searching or seeking out for God. There's evidence for it all over the world. Whether it be one religion or another, it's everyone's search for God. No. Paul would not agree. It is true that there may be, they may be seeking some sort of religious experience, but that is not at all the same as seeking God, the one true God. Scriptures teach that it is God, beloved, who takes the initiative. He is the one who seeks us, not the other way around. Now wait a minute. What does he mean that Scripture teaches that it is God who takes the initiative, that He is the one who seeks us and it is not the other way around? Listen, this is important. You need to think about this if you've never thought about this. Maybe you have always thought that you just decided on your own to seek for God. Maybe that's, that's what you've always thought. I just I decided that was a good idea, and so one day I decided I was going to seek out God. But according to the Word of God, that is not exactly what happened. Listen to these words and listen to them carefully. They are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ recorded for us in the Gospel of John in chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus said this, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him. And I will raise Him the one who comes to me, the one who was drawn on the last day. No one, Jesus says. Again, no exceptions to this. No one can come to Him unless something happens. Well, what is that something? It is God the Father taking the initiative to draw the sinner under the power of sin to Himself. Why? Because no one in and of themselves decides to seek for God because everyone is morally corrupted. They are totally depraved. Their mind, their heart, their will have all been ruined and tainted by sin. Naturally, beloved, you know what we do? We run from the one true God. We don't run to Him. That was the message of Romans chapter 1. Even though it is so evident that there is a God, we look at Him and we refuse Him and we run the other way towards some other religion. Or we just make up our own. But we do not run to God. We do not. Maybe you thought that. But that doesn't align with what the Word of God says. So the reality is, if someone is truly seeking or searching for God, because there are true seekers, do you know why that's happening? Because God is working to draw them to Himself. Because no one, no one on their own seeks for God. No one. So that means, beloved, if you have a saving an authentic, saving relationship with God. You know what that means? It isn't because you sought Him out on your own. No, it isn't. Rather, it is only because He lovingly 
sought you out and drew you to himself. Did you hear what I just said? Now you think about that. Think about it. Don't stop thinking about it. How does that kind of thinking impact your thinking about God? Does that begin to change your perception of God? Would that possibly have any impact on your motivation to worship and serve and praise this God? Would it? I think it would. I think it would. People are so confused in this area. You wonder why there's a lack of worship, a lack of praise, a lack of willingness to serve God, to give Him your whole life? Because people are confused here. They think God's over there and He's just waiting. Waiting for the sinner to come to Him. No. He must go after them. Because they will never, on their own, seek Him out. Because they're ruined by sin. They are all under sin. Think about it. We're going to stop right there. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Let me give you a few concluding thoughts, beloved. I'll probably repeat these next week because they're important. Paul is preparing the readers, preparing anybody who would read the book of Romans for the message he will give in Romans chapter 3. That we need something. We need righteousness. And this, when you get through with Romans, this section of Romans 9 through 18, if you walk away from that still thinking, I don't think I need righteousness, I'm not doing too bad, then you, you've missed it big time. Because the point of it is to make it very clear you are absolutely unrighteous. There's nothing good in you. There's, not, there's no reason for God to, to save you. None at all. To save me. Not a bit. I, in order to, to be acceptable to God, I need to be righteous. I know that. But there's not a bit in me. Not a bit. So I'm going to need a righteousness from God. And that righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. See, it's preparing our hearts, our minds, for the significance of what Christ has done and who He is and why it is so important for sinners to place their faith in Him. We are only given that righteousness through faith in Christ. Only. It's the only way. There is no other way. That's why He is the way. No sinner is going to get to God on their own. It's impossible. They're not even seeking Him. Beyond that, I would say think about your, your love for God. Think about how much this increases that. As you move through the text, and we'll do that, and we'll just pound away next week, we're going to try to deal with 11 of these things. We'll see what happens. I'll speak faster maybe. I don't know. But we're going to try to deal with all these things, and you will be, and I will be, if we understood correctly, leveled laying on the ground. And yet, God extended Himself to us. Huh? That's crazy. See, I say that, you go, oh, you know, the reason I say that is because I know what the Word of God says about me and you. So I, that's when I realize how absolutely awesome and amazing and even 
I can't even understand the love of God. Incomprehensible, beloved. The love of God is to send His Son for me? That's insane. But that is the gospel. And so it just, it moves my heart to be in love with this God who loved me. Even though there was nothing lovable about me. It wasn't even seeking Him. The other thing I would say is this should work to humble us. Not only before God, but among one another. Okay? Among one another. You know, I don't, I don't understand what happens. I, I kind of do. I think I understand it. What happens is we become, by the grace of God, we become Christians. He works in our life. He removes the blinders from our eyes. He pulls the stops out of our ears. He changes our heart. He draws us to Himself. We respond to Him in faith. We trust in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as our Savior, as our King, as our Master. We turn to Him. We begin to walk in that way. God gives us His Spirit. He plants it inside of us. And guess what starts happening? Changes. Good changes. And we begin to walk differently, talk differently, think differently. We're still plagued with sin. We're still fighting this battle every day. But good things are happening, right? And somewhere along the line, we begin to think that those good things are our good things. That I'm responsible for them. So I look, I look across the, 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 the sea of people here and I see one over there who's, a, who's, who's not doing as well as me in some areas. And I become... A little arrogant towards them. Not humble, but proud. You, why aren't you like me? You've been a Christian for, for five years. I've only been a Christian for a year. And look where I am. And so that's why this... I'm going to tell you. That's why these kind of passages are so important. Go back to the passage. Whenever you're feeling like that. Whenever you're thinking those dumb thoughts. Whenever you're feeling haughty towards your brother or sister in Christ. Go back to this passage and realize Paul didn't say, yeah, except you. He said, all. This is you without God at work in your life. This is you. This is me. None righteous, no, not one. None who understand and none who even seek for God. The only, the only thing you can give praise to, we already talked about that. The only thing you can boast in is not you. It is in God, in Christ, in the cross. And in the power of the cross that has changed you and continues to change you. Do you see what I'm saying? That's why when we get this, when we get the gospel, it changes, it revolutionizes the church. It makes it different. It actually makes it a church that actually love one another. Because they're not walking around arrogant, haughty, proud, thinking they're better than the next guy. It causes them to reach out to sinners to give them the gospel, to preach the gospel to them, because it's through the gospel, beloved, that God draws sinners to Himself. And so we realize if we don't preach the gospel, they're not coming. They're not coming. So God has used us as His instruments to draw men and women to Himself, in part. You get that? So that kind of church, they're evangelistic. They want to preach the gospel to their friends, to their neighbors, because they're not thinking, oh, they'll figure it out someday. They'll just come to Christ on their own. No, they won't. They could care less. Or they couldn't care less. I always mess that phrase up. They couldn't care less. They're running from God. And that's why God has called us as His people 
to preach the gospel. You see all of that? Many other things that we'll take from this as we move through this text. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we... These words are hard. You know, they are really hard, Father. Some of them are even... I mean, we haven't even... We've only covered three, Father. And, but these are inspired words. These are your words. They're your very words that your man, the Apostle Paul, has written down. These are the passages that he chose from the Old Testament to demonstrate the reality that every human being, Jew and Gentile, are under sin. Under tyrannical power of sin. Ruined by sin. And these verses demonstrate that reality crystal clear. Father, would you help us not to try to argue with the passage, not to try to reject it, but to humbly accept it. To realize how unbelievable Your grace is to us. Your mercy, Your compassion. Father, we don't deserve not an ounce, not a bit of it. Not at all. We truly do deserve to burn in hell for eternity. We do. That's what we deserve. The fact that You have saved us, those here that are saved, it's unbelievable. Father, help us to realize that that it will grip our hearts, because that will change us. And Lord, as we, we look through this passage and we, we realize that we kind of all come from the same place, we're all as bad off as we possibly can be concerning You, God. All of us. We're born that way. We're not born good. We're not. We're born morally corrupted. Some of us live that out to a greater extreme than others, but in the end, we all are declared unrighteous before You. Father, help us to see that. Help us to, to realize that we are all beggars, really. Beggars who have simply been given the bread of Jesus Christ. And it is only for that reason that we live. And when we see that, we will, we will look at others differently and we will look at one another much differently. We won't boast or become arrogant because you're doing, in the sense that you're doing good things in our life and try to take credit for that but we'll be excited about what you're doing in our life. We'll be excited about what's happening in our brother's and sister's life. And when they're struggling, we won't look down on them, but we'll come alongside them. We'll encourage them. We'll love on them, realizing they came from the same place, messed up. And if it were not from the grace of God, if it were not for that grace, we'd be lost, hopelessly stupid, concerning all divine things, spiritual things. Father, work in our heart. Let this text have its way with us, Lord, that we might be changed and conformed into the image of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.